Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a founding member of Devo, a visual artist and one of the most noteworthy composers in contemporary film. He was single-handedly responsible for reintroducing the harpsichord into popular culture after a several-century layoff with his work on the soundtrack to Rushmore, and now he has written the score for the highly anticipated blockbuster motion picture Thor Ragnarok. Hello and welcome, Mark Mothersbaugh. Hello, Mike. Do you accept the uh, the harpsichord thing, by the way? Uh, you know, there was other harpsichords sporadically, but it, but Wes was specifically adamant that harpsichords and chalets be part of the score. So he likes plucky things. He does. He <laughs> likes, he, or at least I, he had a an an uh, an evolution uh, of his interest in musical instruments that that always had plucky light things as part of it. Uh, him and Dr. Dre actually. Dr. Dre evolved into a lot of blink blink blink. So, Thor Ragnarok, how did you come to be involved with this project? Well, um, between TV shows, uh, video games, and feature films, I've done about 200 total. And I've worked with just about every studio, except I'd never worked with Marvel and uh, never thought about it, you know, never thought much one way or the other. Um, uh, I got a call. Uh, from some guy that I had just seen a movie of his about a, six weeks before that called Hunt for the Wilder People. Wow. And, and it was this interesting film where it was a small and indie film, and it was shot in the outback, I think, in New Zealand. And it's all lush and green and uh, not like what you would think of outback. It was like it was like uh, it was kind of like the Amazon, but it looked cold. And it was beautiful, but the music when it started was kind of shocking because it was like um single arpeggiated synth sort of and i think some of it was jean-michel jarre in the score mm-hmm. the, like, uh, the oxygen guy yeah so it was like yeah. early 70s like oxygen st- style music starting off and at first you're kind of shocked because it's so you know electronic and simple matched with this beautiful um beautiful greenery and and nature and then after about 20 seconds you realize this guy's actually a musical genius and so you kind of settle back and get into it and you enjoy this film and it, at the end of the show you're like yeah he's an artist that's that was great so he was kind of already on on my radar at the, by the time I got a phone call and and he asked me if I'd be interested in working on a film with him and I said certainly and so we met and the rest is 
uh, filmmaking history. Right. Well, not quite. It's, it's actually currently the present of, of film because the yes. movie is, is out today as we as we speak. That's sort of what they do now, right? I feel like they've finally settled on formulas that don't feel formulaic. I think Star Wars and the Marvel movies are doing the same thing, which is where there's the infrastructure behind it that's going to make it lives up, make sure it lives up to the brand. But they're constantly bringing in new talent to make sure that they don't end up with a stale formula. So it's a formula for keeping things fresh. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. I was curious exactly what it was because I, 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 I have to say I w- I were you know I had just seen also on YouTube. Uh, last year, there was somebody had done a fairly intellectual uh, dissection of the music of Marvel and uh, showed how it was very um, uninteresting, repetitive, uh, and, and I had already kind of had that feeling about it because I'd seen a couple with my kids where I fell asleep and. <laughs> It was going boom, bida bam, da da boom, bida bam, and then mm-hmm. I woke up twenty minutes later, and it's boom, bida bam, bida boom, and it was like this musical wallpaper. Yes. And uh, so, when I met Taika and we started talking, he said, "Let's push the boundaries." And so, um, knowing where he had come from, I thought, "Well, that's that's a great challenge, and I, I really want to do it." So, so um, we. I got involved with him on it, and uh, he was sending me kind of electronic music. Not, nothing, he sent me nothing that was orchestral. And um, and uh, a lot of it was New Zealand um, alternative bands that were really interesting. And uh, on the other hand, I had Marvel, who was like saying, and... You, I know you haven't done a big superhero film yet, but you, you're comfortable with a big orchestra. And I assured him that, you know that, you know the Legos and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I'm familiar and quite with, a your, few with your choice were, on Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Were, yeah. were ninety piece orchestras, right. so you know it was in that same ballpark. And I wrote them a a theme for Thor, so that they knew that, yeah, the hundred piece orchestras, you know not going to be left behind on this movie. And and uh, I knew I was going to have these two different uh, uh, influences, and I wasn't sure how it was going to work out, and, and it came out great. It was like they were both very uh, – they, they got along really well. Uh, and by they, I mean uh, Taika, the director, yeah. and um, Kevin, the head of uh, Marvel, who – was very invested in in everything creative, which is kind of I think why why Marvel has been so successful. Uh, you know, I think about all I've worked probably at every studio in town, and and uh, the other one that's kind of close to similar to that to me is Pixar. I think it's I think in some ways Marvel it, Marvel treats its you know its material the same way that Pixar does, where everybody's really invested and they're all pulling together. And, you know, at some studios, you know, the head of the studio has no interest in certainly who the composer is. You know, it's like the composer at a lot of these places, we're like, you know, we're we're just like, you know, the guy that's putting in the, the new kitchen, you know, or something like that. And yeah. they're like, cobbler, cobble me some music. You yeah, know? you're like the handyman. Yeah. And they, they're, you know, they're off doing marketing 
you know, sure. things and, and stuff that's really important to them. And so, but this was like a thing where Kevin early on, when I would do music reviews for uh Taika music, I was writing for footage as he was giving it to me. Um, I'd come over to Marvel and we'd be sitting there on a couch and Kevin would come over and sit next to me and he'd be watching and, and commenting and, and absorbing things. And he was really, he was really kind of, at first, non-invasive at all. Not you know, didn't even interact that much. He was just kind of observing, and then he started having ideas, and we started working together. And it was, I gotta say, it was kind of. Uh, I I didn't really have any expectations, although I did know that that once I I met everybody, I realized that they, in fact, they did have a tendency towards writing suites. There's some compu- composers that what they do is they'll write you like in like if it was this movie if it was Ragnarok they might write a Thor theme a Hela theme yeah. um you know all a uh, Loki theme and um they would they would make them like 9 minutes or 10 minutes long or half that or something and they would go in and out of different emotional you know feels all within that piece and then they'd just give it to an editor and the editor would cut it in and and I was like well, that's why they're why so many of their films sound like wallpaper because that's what they've been doing. So, I made it. I, I made certain that even though it was going to be a lot more work, I was going to, you know, write music for every piece of footage that there was, and and then just to to be safe between Taika and uh, and people that were looking for a more, um, were looking for the classic. Marvel sound because I mean, you know, we weren't trying to destroy Marvel at all. We wanted to just expand it some, and sure. I, I think we did. Yeah, every one of these films should be consistent with the whole, yeah. but but it should also have its own identity. So so this movie, it's like you could take. I g- I gave a score to uh, Taika and Kevin that they could, if they put the dial all the way one direction, you would hear a hundred piece orchestra and a thirty five piece choir, uh, that had all the melodies and everything to make a a great Marvel score, you start turning it this way and you're dialing in a 50-piece electronic uh, band that I I took instruments out of the basement at Mutato, dusted off old Devo gear and and, uh, fired it up again. And um, if you went all the way over here, it would be an all-electronic score. And so I gave them the ability to go back and forth uh pretty seamlessly mm-hmm. and they could they could where they felt they needed to go more electronic they could do it and and um it seems like that it was worked. It. I, I, was I have it. a lot of questions based on what you just said. First of all, when you initially said that between Marvel and the director, you felt like there were different influences on either side, I assumed, I'm glad incorrectly, that you were being political because I know people who work in film very often, the director has one vision, the studio has another, the producer might have another, and then it becomes a game of figuring out, well, who actually has the juice on this because I kind of yeah. need to work toward that person. You, when you say influence, you actually mean that these two sides did want to collaborate, compromise, and come up with the best possible product. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, that was. It was. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't want you to get the wrong idea about that. At no, all. I, I. And it was impressive to me mm-hmm. that that I to watch the arc of both of them. Yeah. Because I watched um, Taika go from being in this situation where he's probably holding a camera and the lights, and maybe has the sound you know, that he's recording, you know, for a film. And then he goes into a room with a, 
a picture editor, and then they build a movie, and they just go through their CD collections to find music to put on the film, and then that's it, to being in charge of thousands of people all over the world that are working on everything from effects and sound and uh, uh, visuals, you know, and they're all in these different areas, you know, to have this big machine that he became. I, I watched him go from being nervous about it at first to getting really comfortable with it, and I watched Kevin go from keeping an eye on things at a distance and then them uh, working together really well. I, I was... I like that. I like that when that happens. Because, you know, you get in, I mean, I have a little bit of a cynical side because I've done so many uh, projects. Sure. It, it used to be when I first started, I would, I, I used to wonder, how come there's so many bad movies and TV shows out there? But then, you know, then once you start working in the business and you read a script, and you go, well, this looks like it's going to be pretty good. And then you sign on and then they send you the first cut of the of the TV show or the film and you go, Oh, that's how they're going to screw it up, you know. And mm-hmm. there's so many ways to to mess up a film. You know? Sure, it's like, and it, so many people are, so many cooks are have to be in yeah. the kitchen. The South Park guys, I think, made a great point where they said the reason why there's so few absolutely perfect movies and so few movies that are just straight up and down terrible is because there are. Basically, you need to bat a thousand with all of the people that you hire and the yep. ju- the work that they do, or you need to bat zero. Most of the time, you are going to end up somewhere in the middle where some people botch it and some people yeah. do their job well, and you end up with the typical Hollywood mess. Mm-hmm. So, there are really, I, I mean, I, I think there's just two different kinds of movie scores. There's the, the wallpaper, you know, and then there is. I don't want to say songs, but there's music that has its own identity. You know, I, I always, with you, come back to the Rushmore score. It's maybe my favorite movie, certainly my favorite movie soundtrack. You can't think of the movie. It, well, more than anything, the music, you can listen to the music on its own. You'd have to be sort of a lunatic to listen to a lot of Hollywood blockbuster soundtrack score music unaccompanied just for your musical edification. That's true. Um, you know, it's it's like maybe by being in a band that was... I brought melody along with me, so that's that's kind of what helps my scores. And and since by I was in a band, uh, you know, it's like you learn how to work either with a shoestring or with a a big bouquet of uh, London Symphony if you have it. Right. And um, I wanted to ask you about the electronic thing, and it's interesting the way that you brought it up because I I when I, I grew up as a little kid when a lot of electronic driven music was very popular even in the mainstream and all of the rock snobs that I knew were just like dismissive of it mainly because uh, you know a computer couldn't make a sound that was organic and now you're and now you're talking about somebody who's making a motion picture that's a very organic look it's set in nature and they're able to marry that to to electronic stuff how do you Looking back, I feel that a lot of the electronic stuff that I grew up on, it sounds in many ways more human than a lot of the guitar and drum stuff that was coming out in, say, the early 80s or mid 80s. How do you feel like electronic stuff has aged? Well, to me, electronic instruments are just an expansion of of the traditional orchestra, which has been around for hundreds of years. It's like when when electric music came in, it, it came in really small. It came in with like theremins and a few things here and there. And then in the 70s, it really exploded with uh, Moogs and uh, all the different synthesizer companies building synthesizers. And then now, 
it's it's gigantic and it's and it's incredible and i don't know in some ways it's the best time ever if you're a musician to to you know you have such a an amazing choice of of palettes to choose from and uh um i i I don't know. I I'd love to be like a kid right now that was just getting into the business because I think it it's it's been democratized and and um I love all the choices that are available. There's certainly never been a better time to make music in terms of I'm I know you I'm I'm sure you went through the whole thing of look we've got a 4-hour block of studio time and the engineer might be on pills. But we're just going to we're yeah. going to go record an EP today. That's just the way it's going to be. And I had a little bit of well, a fair bit of that as well when I was making music. And nowadays, just I don't know that there there have probably been better times to be working musicians in terms of making money off of successful music. But I, there can't possibly have been a better time to be an artist. Yeah. Well, and I think what what I sense you are, which is I, personally, I, I love performing music, but I really love recording music. And there's never been a better time to be someone who likes recording music. Oh, yeah. For for a lot of reasons. But but it's. It's like I don't know. I, I'm older than you by about three. I think you you look like you're about sixteen or seventeen. <laughs> Anyhow, so yeah, and you you are twenty. So yeah, yeah, that's about right. Yeah, that's about right. I'm, I think my math is is uh, working there. We're in the ballpark, Mark Wendersbaugh. But, but um, when I was a kid, it's like I had no idea what a recording studio was. I I was curious what it was. What what's a record? What's a a record company and and you had to get permission from those people to make a record. And now a kid can have a cell phone and have an idea for a song on the way home from school and you don't have to own a bass guitar and have a bass amp you don't have to have a drum set where your parents are going turn it down don't play right now i'm watching tv mm-hmm. you can you can sit there with your with a 2 dollar app and go boom pa boom boom pa and then write your drum set and then go through and say oh i want it to be electronic drums that sound like moby or sound like uh I want them to sound more like um, Nirvana or something. You can pick whatever drums you want, and then you can do the same thing with a bass sound. You can boom, 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 boom in, into your phone, and you can like pick what kind of acoustic or electronic bass you want, and you can build up with all the instruments and sing on top of it. And you've got to re- – first off, you, you're recording – at a quality better than the Beatles had when they did their first album. <laughs> right. And if you get something you like, you don't have to then go find a record company that'll let you put it out. You just like um you just like go to YouTube and you can make a video with the same phone and you can overnight you can have a song that the whole world, not just, you know, whoever's going to the record stores that some little record company is putting you in. You can be you can have music that the whole world can listen to and I don't know. It's so democratic. It's so amazing. And it's not just like rich kids have cell phones. Everybody does. I mean, I know. I mean, kids in the Amazon, you know, that are on that are going down the river on a on a dugout, you know, have a cell phone with them while they're doing it and they can be making music. And I, I don't know. It's just kind of like the best time to be a human ever in the history of humans. Viewed from a certain angle, absolutely positively, the uh, the the possibilities are absolutely endless. I have one more uh, film scoring question. I've always been sort of curious about this. You, you may have already answered it, but to what extent is it about, or was it about for you on this Thor Ragnarok movie? 
actually about here is the more or less the finished film cut of what's going to happen now, literally right to the beep. Thor turns around suddenly. We need a splash of music. To, to what extent, if any, does that happen? It it happens quite a bit. I mean, to me, that was the difference from other movies I'd seen where the, their their power was diminished by music that was just kind of down in the background, kind of you know percolating underneath it. And and I wanted something that that commented on and uh, and underlined and strengthened things. You know, like. Uh, bringing gravitas and emotion and uh, letting the humor play, but still, but still, you know, being able to be an integral part. Um, I have not seen, I'm planning on seeing the movie this weekend, but uh, I have friends who have seen it. And by the way, they say you nailed it. Oh, good. (laughs) The the early, the early reviews are good. I always uh, also think about with the orchestras, like first, I started thinking about this in the '60s, right? The orchestras didn't want to play with the Beatles because they thought it was beneath them, or so, or so the story goes. Where, I love and, that. That's and, a great story. And now those guys uh, and ladies uh, are bragging about it that they played. It's them. easily the most noteworthy thing that they ever that they ever did. And I wonder if you are a working, you know, cellist nowadays. What percentage of your working time and income is derived, you know, from playing? the stuff that the Stravinsky that you wanted to be playing and how much is from making some Richard Gere romantic, you know, drama that needs some in the background. Well, the reality is, and I was trying to come up with a number, there's probably less than seven or 800 musicians in the whole planet that can, you can set uh, a score for, for a serious, uh, complicated film in front of them and they can look at it have a click going on in one ear be watching a conductor and nail it in the first take i mean these there's a very small number of people like that there's a couple hundred here maybe 300 in la we've probably got the la and london probably have the two biggest bases and then there's new york's got some and there's other cities in europe that do and and then there's a about a hundred people down in uh, sydney australia that are incredible but um, you could fit them all into one small uh, ballroom and uh, and and lose all of them at once. Right. So few. Yeah. Uh, but I I would love to have that job if I didn't have the. I I like writing, mm-hmm. but if I was a player, I think it would be a great job because they show up for work, and on Tuesday through Thursday they're working on a you know a cartoon. On Friday through Wednesday they're working on Thor on. There's, you know, on the next four or five days, they have a Christmas special or they have, they're always doing something new and they're working with uh, a group of composers that includes some of the best composers in the world now. And they're playing on songs too, especially at, at Abbey Road. They get a chance to, to play on uh, albums and things. So yeah, I would like to, I wouldn't mind that job. I think it'd be a cool job. How challenging was it for you? I don't mean to um, insult your musical knowledge, but I'm guessing you, I'm guessing you in 1980 could not have written a 60 piece orchestra score. How hard is it to get up to? I don't feel like I could ever, ever, ever learn how to do that, or, uh, or have the imagination to know. Well, when these guys are doing this, I'll do this as counterpoint, but then as a counterpoint to the counterpoint, these two guys over here are going to be run. It's like almost like des- designing a, a football play for 60 people. Well. um, yeah, in 1980, I don't know what I would have done. I might have done something uh, 
I don't know what I would have done back then. I, I was I was interested in other style, other kinds of music at the time, and I was really tunnel visioned into it. But by by the mid '80s, I was working on. Um, I had I was scoring a TV series called Pee Wee's Playhouse. Sure. And what had happened to me is I'd gone through doing five albums with Devo, where you know, you go in, you write twelve songs, you rehearse them, you record them. Then you go put together a tour and you like pick out co- you you design costumes in our case and you design a stage show and you make a film or two to go with it a couple of videos and then you go out on tour and then a year later you come back and write twelve more songs and and I did five albums like that before um, we kind of were in a hiatus situation and um, Paul Rubens who is Pee Wee he sent me a tape on a Monday. On Tuesday, I wrote 12 songs worth of music. On Wednesday, I recorded it. On Thursday, I put it in the mail to New York where they were doing the editing. On Friday, they cut it into picture. And on Saturday, we watched it on TV. Then on Monday, I got another tape. And it was 12, I had to write 12 more songs on the next day. And I said, sign me up for this job. I just love the idea of being creative and writing constantly. Uh so for me, it was like the perfect job. And, and it took me a while. I, I was super lucky uh, in the sense that I was doing a TV show called Rugrats, mm-hmm. and it became really popular because cable had just, satellites had just started all over the world. And I was babysitting around that time. You were huge. Okay. So, so um, when they said we're going to do a feature, Nickelodeon had never done a, a, a feature film before. And so when the producer said, well, we want our composer, Mark Mothersbaugh, to score the music, Paramount, who was uh, going to put it out, said, hey, you, you can't use him. He's never worked with an orchestra before. And they go, well, he's our composer, so we're using him. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was lucky for me because I kind of was able to sidestep the catch-22 of, well, you've never done it, so we're not going to let you. Right. And, uh, and when I got orchestrators to work with me, I was writing things. You know, I was doing pads, you know, for for the string sections and pads for the horn sections and things. And I got these guys that had, had worked with bands before and, and um, uh, some guys that were in Zappa's band, the horn section, and they had moved into to um, orchestrating uh, and arranging. And they were really nice to me. Uh, I remember the, I remember my one, one of my lead orchestrators going, okay, Mark, I love that flute part, but just so you know, when you get up to a B-flat, I'm going to change it over to a piccolo because flutes can't play that high. So uh. <laughs> we'll do, it'll be part flute down here and piccolo up here. And they were really great and supportive and helped me get through it. And after the first one, I went, that was easy. So you could do it. So here we are. Um, a couple of quick questions before I let you go. I did want to ask you one sort of big question about Devo. I talked to, I interviewed um, John Lydon one time and he said that he was disappointed with where punk had gone because the way he understood it everybody in that initial punk scene did their own thing and did something crazy that no one else had ever done before and he thought that if punk was going to continue every other kid would also have to come up with some crazy unique thing and that was the spirit of punk 18 months later you have Johnny Rotten knockoffs Sid Vicious knockoffs and 2017 you can still find those guys and girls do you consider what Devo were and are to be in that spirit that he was talking about? If, if we're going to do something crazy, it needs to be completely crazy in a completely different way than other people have been crazy before. Yeah, I think that that goes without saying. I, and 
since you said that, I'll tell you a story. Please. That, I'm going to do the, the condensed version of it, but um, somewhere in 77, we knew we were going to sign with Richard Branson and Virgin Records, and Richard, it was the worst winter ever in, in Ohio for a long time, for like about 20 years, and it was an, it was a state emergency because we had 34 inches of snow and nobody could get out of their houses, and we were, Devo was, we didn't have an apartment anymore of our own, we, nobody had an apartment, so we were sleeping in people's living rooms and stuff, and it was freezing, and I got a phone call from Richard Branson, and he said, you want to come to Jamaica? Mm-hmm. And I go... Mean the island? Yeah, sure. You know, I and he said, anybody else in the band want to come down? And Bob Casale wanted to do it. So the two of us, we flew down to Jamaica. He, uh, we met up with him, and he immediately was getting us stoned. And there was no such thing as marijuana in Ohio. It was like non-existent. Oh, that's a big day then. So we're like, okay, and. Bob's really helping himself, you know? <laughs> but we're sitting on the floor and there's Richard and a couple other guys from Virgin Records and they're talking and they said, what do you guys think of uh, Sex Pistols? And we go, oh, they're great. They were our favorite band. That's why we wanted to work with you because you signed them and they were our, our favorite band and we're really sorry they, they split up because we had like a couple weeks before that, we were playing in Mabuhay Gardens in San Francisco and it was the same weekend that the Sex Pistols played, uh, what was it, Cal- Winterland or Cow Palace, wherever it was, wherever they played their final show. And uh, they came over afterwards to where Devo was staying. There was a punk magazine called Search and Destroy, and they let us sleep on the floor. And so those guys came over and hung out with us, uh, Sid and and Steve and and uh, uh, the band. And, and um, that was the last time... We saw him, and then a couple of weeks later, I got this call from Richard, and so he invited us to Jamaica, and, he's, and we said, yeah, we thought they were great. We love that band. Sorry that they they broke up and blah, blah, blah. He goes, well, I'll tell you why you're here. Johnny Rotten is in the next room, and he wants to join Devo. And if you say yes, I have reporters from the New Music Express, Sounds, and Melody Maker here. We can all go down on the beach shake hands and talk about Johnny Lydon joining Johnny Rotten joining Devo. And I remember at that instant I realized I'm kind of stoned right now. This is not a great time to be talking about some I mean he spent close to $300 to fly me here and he's going to have wasted his money. will he still fly me home? And um I'm looking at him and I just remember thinking Richard Branson, he had these protruding teeth. Yes. I just thought of him as like a brain-eating ape. Right at that moment, I thought, wow, he's like an aggressive brain-eating ape. And he's smiling and looking at me with that big grin. And, he's got um, a big mouth in general. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just remember saying, no, uh, you know, if there's, you know, I think he should, um, I think he should, you know, like how Devo, were Devo incorporated, he should be like a, a corporation too. He should just totally go the opposite direction he was going before but and and uh we'll, we would help out but we don't want to really be part of you know and i just remember it was that thing where like you know like when you're a little kid and you're at school or at church or someplace really serious and all of a sudden everything in the world seems absurd mhm or that's an sm- absurd moment or you're sm- smoking pot one or the other and <laughs> you've never smoked it yeah and uh 
you start laughing uncontrollably. I just remember going, Richard, I'm not laughing at you. I'm just so surprised. Yeah. That I wasn't expecting this. And I'm so, in Jamaica and I'm stoned for the first time, and Johnny Rotten's in the next room and he yeah. wants to join my band. It's pretty. Yeah. It is pretty absurd. So it was pretty weird. So that was that's my John Lydon. Story. That's amazing. I I have to let you go. One last quick thing in regard again to the Rushmore soundtrack, which I absolutely adore. Have you met the band Vampire Weekend? And if so, did they give you money? Since so much of their career has been based in shamelessly aping the sound of that soundtrack. Well, that's sweet of you to say that. Um, we almost worked on something together. I can't remember what it was. There was something. Mm-hmm. The, and they did come over to the studio and looked around and checked things out. I and, bet they did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like a lot of their stuff. I, that first album was pretty It was pretty yeah. incredible. Um, all right. Well, thank you so, so much for your time and your uh, insight and your stories. Mark Mothersbaugh, you have scored Thor Ragnarok, as if anybody needs to be told. It is in theaters now. Thank you, sir. You are listening to The Tully Show. More to come with Kevin Kraft after this on Faction Talk. We are back on The Tully Show here on Faction Talk. We were just speaking to Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo fame, who has composed the score for the brand new Marvel movie, Thor Ragnarok. Joining us now for the second half or so of the show, our resident Marvel movie comic book expert Kevin Kraft. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you just put that on a business card. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I have, for the most part, dipped out of the Marvel universe. How excited are we still about, like, are you ready to Ragnarok? Oh, fuck yeah. I'm st- I'm, I have my ticket. I'm going after we leave here. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited because Thor Ragnarok is mostly a Planet Hulk movie. It's they're just using Thor to carry it because I don't think just Hulk people, can't talk. Exactly, people don't really give a fuck about Hulk movies. Yeah, like they were, yeah, they were yeah. actually planning on making a Planet Hulk movie and scrapped it. Okay, wait. It, so, so back up because I don't even know what Planet Hulk is. Hulk from a planet? No. What happens is. Um, Hulk is deemed by the Fantastic Four to just be too much of a wild card, too much of a danger when he goes off, like, half-cocked, no one's behind the steering wheel, and he's just rampaging. So, well, of course, he's the Hulk. Are are the Fantastic Four Avengers? No. Are these two they're different the universes? Up, no, they're, they're both in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> okay. Not the same cinematic universe, but the same comic book universe. They're, they're all Marvel properties. So do they ever run into each other? In the comics? Oh, yeah. Okay. Do why do some people belong to the Fantastic Four? And, oh, the Fantastic Four were all made at the same time, right? Yeah. But does that mean that they are obliged to remain a four if one of them wanted to be an Avenger? Would that be weird? They've done some stuff where, for a little bit, I think Spider-Man was a part of the Fantastic Four. That okay. was very short-lived. It's mostly the same four people. It's not like the Avengers, where pretty much any comic character you can name who's in the Marvel Universe, at one point in the comics, has been an Avenger. Okay. But the Fantastic Four, I think with the exception of Spider-Man and maybe a couple I I never caught on to, has always been the same Fantastic Four. Wait, but then, so where where does the Hulk fit into the Fantastic Four? Did they kick him out because they've already got a shitty Hulk ripoff? Well, no, because they have, well, they have the thing. Yeah, I know. They have, hey, we've already got your cheap, your cheap non-union replacement. No, no, in in the comics, they, they aren't, like, confined. So, like, the Fantastic Four interacts with the Avengers quite often and stuff. Mm-hmm. So in this in this storyline, the Hulk was deemed such a liability that Reed Richards builds like some Who's device. He's, oh, he's the Fantastic Four. He's, he's a, a stretchy guy. guy. Yeah. Yeah, so they, they put a thing that 
like traps Hulk and they blast him into a wormhole thinking that that just takes care of the Hulk problem. It's not very nice. It isn't. And then the Hulk ends up like the other end of that wormhole dumps him out on this planet, Sakaar. And these bug people find him and he gets taken in as a gladiator. So they fit him with this chip that basically, like if he fucks off, that electrocutes him. And it kind of keeps him in line to right. play along with their gladiator games. Gotcha. Well, luckily he landed on a planet whose atmosphere and oxygen levels roughly um, uh, equate to those of Earth. Of course. He, he, yeah, he, <laughs> they get very lucky with that often. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for them. They deserve that. They do a lot for us. So the Planet Hulk comic was awesome. It was so cool. And he's, he's not like the Hulk mad. Like he actually talks in it. Okay, so he can carry he... his own story. And I think they're... Wait, okay, but does he become Bruce Banner there, or is he always angry on Hulk planet? He's always Hulk. Why? I don't know. Th- nobody asked this things. question? There's no Bruce Banner on Hulk planet? Uh, they might have. It's a, it's a very big book. I've read it twice. So there could be some explanation that I'm just not remembering. Okay, and on, in this different dimension, he now has the ability to speak. Yeah. When he gets off the Hulk planet and... B- presumably does a U-turn back through the wormhole? Can he still talk when he gets here, or does he lose his ability to no, speak? No, I think, I think he can t- still talk, because that goes into war- World War Hulk, which is the fo- the story that takes place after that, which was not as good. Okay. okay, And kind of lame. But the fact that that's going to be, that story's going to be on the big screen, is, it's, it, this is like Christmas. Today is Christmas for me, that I get to go and see that movie. I'm so excited. And fucking Jeff Goldblum's in it. Yep. I fucking love Jeff Goldblum. But wait, so why is it not... I don't understand. So they wanted to make a Planet Hulk movie, and they did make a Planet Hulk movie. They just didn't call it Planet Hulk because actually Thor is the star of Planet Hulk, but you're really excited about it because it's Planet Hulk? They're basically... They 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 want the Planet Hulk story to be on the big screen, but they don't want to call it Planet Hulk because they don't think it will draw in enough people. So That's what bullshit. they're doing is... They're Thor's doing, lame. There, well, but he has, I guess, more box office draw right That's now. That's so ridiculous. They just ripped him off wholesale from Norse mythology and didn't yeah. change anything. Yeah. I mean, DC is guilty of that, too. They have Frankenstein in the Justice League Dark. And, you yeah. know, that's an existing property. Right. Is that in movies? No, not yet. Not yet is probably the answer to any character, right? Guillermo del Toro really, really, really wants to make a Justice League Dark movie. Okay. Well, I'm pulling for him. Yeah, me too. So Ragnarok. So like, are you're very excited about this? Is does the world have superhero fatigue yet, or do these just keep? Going? No, it Ragnarok is is tracking to make a boatload of cash. Okay, I think like by the end of this weekend, four hundred million globally. Can I tell you my biggest issue with superhero movies nowadays? It's not one that I think that you would expect. Um, it's that I find. Like, for example, when I saw Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and I will grant you it's only the second one in the series, this becomes more problematic to me when by the time you get to, you know, three, four, five, whatever. Movies have this thing where the main character needs to solve an external problem and an internal problem at the same time. So you need to save the world and also learn a very valuable lesson about yourself in the process. And... These are not these are like one-dimensional characters pretty much to begin with. They're cartoon. They're human cartoons, and there's only so many lessons that I can give a shit about them learning. 
And like even in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, it was only the second one, but like, okay, now you're going to find meet your dad and we'll learn something valuable about him. But there's going to be something in the next one that's also a, about the personal development of Star-Lord that I could give a fuck about and I don't understand why they don't follow more of like the James Bond model. James Bond never learns anything. It's been 50 years yeah. and he hasn't he hasn't learned a fucking thing. I'm still slapping bitches. Right, exactly. No, he's a hateful womanizing alcoholic. <laughs> and and we like him that way. And I yeah. just wish that they would just embrace what they are, which is comic book movies and I don't care about I could give a fuck about a pretty boy with a hammer's family drama. Yeah, and I think that I think you I don't know. I I I'm one of those people that when I see the first trailer, I'm like, "Oh, fucking dope. Yes, I'm in." And then I try to n- I don't read up on it. Mm-hmm. I don't watch any further trailers. Yes. I want to go in fresh. So I don't know what they're planning, but I can tell you. I can ruin it all for you right you know, now. Pl- please don't. But I think they might kind of be leaning towards that. I mean, they cuz it's not only do they appear in their own movies, they appear in the crossovers. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're in the Avengers movies. Most yeah. of the Avengers were in Captain America Civil War. So I think they might be kind of abandoning that for most of the characters and just giving them the, you know these characters, you already know what they're up to. Yeah. Save the goddamn world. This time, Thanos is going to have all of the Infinity Stones. He gets them all in the gauntlet. He will be God. Uh-huh. So we have to stop God. How Okay, how about this? How come there are, sometimes when the Earth is under attack, all of the Avengers come together and, and the Earth can only be saved by their combined powers, but other times the Earth is under attack and one guy tries to tackle it all by himself and he can just barely do it. Why is it not always a team effort? That'd be as if there was like a SWAT team that dealt with things, but occasionally this one was all on Steve. Mind you, the challenge is exactly equivalent to the one that it took 20 men to fight last time. Yep, yep. I, I, I'm aware of that problem. <laughs> and I think... I did, am I not the first person to notice this issue? Well, I think some of that is explained by timeline continuity. Mm-hmm. Like the reason you don't see Thor and Hulk in Captain America Civil War is I think it takes place at the same exact time as Thor Ragnarok. So... I think that's how so they're So Thor Ragnarok it. actually happened post-World War II? No, no. I think it's happening simultaneously as the Captain America Civil War timeline oh so he that's when he's unfrozen and no 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 that the, <laughs> the civil war is is not the american civil war it's a civil war between the <laughs> I heroes know, I, okay i do know that much i do have a five-year-old child but he was what he i have not watched a captain america movie i can't be fucked um he he was he fought in world war Two. yeah and then he was flattened he and they froze him no well yeah he wanted to he was a he was a wimpy nerd yeah they he wanted to fight so bad. They're like, all right, well, we'll test you out with the super super soldier oh, program. Okay. They beef him up, and mm-hmm. then the, he basically becomes the mascot of the army. And he's, did he win World War Two for us? Uh, well, in this universe where basically Red Skull was Hitler. Oh yes, he stopped Red Skull, and then to bury the Tesseract. That guy which was, was a pretty. That guy was a, a pretty tough Hitler. So yeah. shout out to you. <laughs> So rather than risk this technology falling into the hands of evil again, he sinks himself with the Tesseract and gets frozen. Mm-hmm. They discover him, and bam, he's part of the Avengers. They thaw him out. So Civil War, which is I, I'm not that dumb, is him fighting Iron Man. Yeah. He killed, he murders Iron Man, right? Iron Man's dead now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he fisted him to death. 
That was really ballsy. I mean, yeah. I was just like, you know, they're going to say that they're going to fight each other, but nobody's actually really going to win this thing. They're going to come out of this thing um, tighter than they've ever been before and probably uh, joining forces against a shared adversary. But nope, he just <laughs> murdered the shit out of, I mean, no subtlety whatsoever. It was a one-act play, just dragging Tony Stark's lifeless <laughs> corpse <laughs> left and right, just defiling it for 90 straight minutes. <laughs> I, I don't know how they managed to get the MPAA to sign off on a PG-13. Cause, yeah, I know. Man, it was this... fucking brutal. It was tough to watch. It was like Mel, <laughs> it was like a Mel Gibson torture movie. So what happens? Where where do we get after Thor? Because like, they have the next 10 years releases lined up, right? Yeah. So, what burning questions remain in the Marvel Universe? Well, that's the thing. There's still one Infinity Gem left. Okay, what's that? What's an Infinity Gem? That's basically like the purple thing in Guardians of the Galaxy, that little purple gem mm. that they're trying to keep away from Ronan. I saw that movie like three weeks ago. I have no idea what you're talking about. Did you see Doctor Strange? <sighs> Hell no. Well, shit. I haven't been on a plane recently, so you see my conundrum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're basically these uh, very, very, very powerful stones that if you wield them, it takes over one certain aspect of existence. Like what? So they have the time gem, the soul gem, the mind gem, the power gem, the reality gem. Where did these come from? Uh, they were uh, byproducts of the cre- the creation of existence. Okay, so nobody owns them. No, they're kind of just floating around, but people know about them yeah. and they want them because sure. they know how powerful they are. I get that. And that's basically where Avengers 3 is going to be set up. Avengers 3 is going to be a heist movie of Thanos hunting down each of these gems. Who's like, Thanos? He's the big purple bad guy. <laughs> I don't remember him either. He's in Guardians of the Galaxy 1 a couple of times, and then he's basically just been in Easter eggs at the end of Avengers 1 and Avengers 2 Age of Ultron. Ooh, he's coming. Yeah. Right. He's the big baddie. Mm-hmm. He's one of the biggest bad guys in the entirety of the Marvel Universe. When Thanos shows up, you know there's some shit going down. Okay, who else is a big bad guy? Uh, well, then you get into the cosmic entities like Galactus... Um, if there's a watcher nearby, if you're reading a comic and a watcher shows up, that's when you know some serious shit is about to happen. Okay, are they in movies? They were briefly in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Okay. When their ship is jumping dimension to dimension and their running stimpy faces getting all stretched out, uh-huh. they go by Stan Lee, who's sitting there with a bunch of giant bald guys. Yeah. Those are the watchers. Oh, wow. That must have been an exciting moment for you. So exciting because it confirmed the fan theory that the reason Stan Lee has a cameo in every Marvel movie is he is a watcher. Oh, that's great. He deserves that. Yeah. He's still doing things. Yeah. I mean, he just had his comic book convention uh, this past weekend in Los Angeles. He appeared. I don't think it was the same thing. I think he was like an evening with Stan Lee at the theater up the street from here. I think if he stops, he'll die. And he knows this. So he's just going to keep on working until he turns into a pile of dust. Him and Larry King, yeah, right? Yeah. Just meeting for, to play handball at 4 a.m. because yeah. they can't afford to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and he's filmed his cameos. They're all stacked. I've heard that. Yeah. That's going to be very nice and bittersweet when uh, he has passed away, and yet he's still playing a milk delivery man in Marvel movies five years later. The culmination of his life has led to this, seeing all of his creations done justice on the big screen, and he gets to be in all of them. It's the coolest thing i cannot think of another like comparison in the culture of there are so many people who are you know make something and it just makes them famous and rich and whatever and there are so many people who become famous for their art after they die i can't think of anybody else who made something and obviously he was a massive success in his own right for most of his life like he kind of had the the right 
the right level of of fame and now he's just like the fucking man like pretty much blockbuster entertainment runs through stan lee's mind and he's around to see it like how long after he invented most of these characters with whoever his face was jack kirby yeah Yeah. a lot of it was the 60s and 70s fuck yep that's awesome yeah it's really fucking cool and then uh what else is happening the rest of this cinematic year you star wars guy oh yeah Big time. I'm pretty excited about it. I actually have a feeling that... I think that the new Star Wars have been very good. Really good. Um, And I feel like uh, The Force Awakens, for me as somebody who has been forced to watch it like 50 times, it actually gets better. It's In the beginning you watch it and you go, wow, man, they really just ran back. The New Hope, yeah, exactly. Um And they did. And that's what's kind of so incredible about this one is it's like there's... They, it's It's kind of totally a remake of an old movie and a completely new thing all at the exact same time in a very satisfying way. And I think that very little has been made of the fact that like I see a lot of things raising a little boy where they're trying to like cram girls into boy stuff. Like they're just trying to sell more toys. Yeah. You know? And making a girl like the central character of this was was a really, really, really bold move. And the fact that I don't think anybody even questions Ray as the center of this universe was like a, they talk about how safe it is because they're just remaking new hope. What a fucking massive game. It's so easy to imagine a scenario where remember when they rebooted star Wars and and Luke Skywalker was a girl and no little boy wanted to watch it. Yeah. They could have, that could have so easily been the scenario. And it's funny because my kid doesn't like love Ray he just like accepts that she's the the you know Deus ex machina or whatever. She's just the thing that gets everything moving, and so fine, you know. Yeah, and then you have the snarling fanboys who are accusing her of being like a what were they called a Mary Sue, Peggy Sue? Oh, what's that? Um, basically, just a woman who shows up and she's just incredibly overpowered for no reason, or what overpowerful for no reason. What do you mean? Like, um, like she's just some you know desert scavenger she's goddamn at the Jedi. start of the movie. Yeah, that's what Luke Skywalker was too. Yeah, but it took him a while before he really had a lot of skill. She takes on Wait. a fucking Sith Lord one of the first times she's holding a lightsaber. And this is a running trope that the fanboys have a problem with? Are there yeah, other girls who get superpowers and they, they, they develop too quickly? I, I And I don't even know if it's gender specific. I know that the, the term is uh, female, but I think it can be used across the genders. Just didn't, anybody... Luke, didn't Luke had to fight Darth Vader in the first one, didn't he? Oh, fuck. Now I'm going to seem like a not not that great a geek, but uh, uh, I guess cause not because they all kind of bleed through with like certain stuff. Yeah, I, well, I'm trying to think. So so Darth Vader kills Obi Wan. Luke blows up the Death Star. Spoiler alert! With Darth Vader on his tail, but that's not the same as actually facing off against him. I don't know if they have a lightsaber fight in the first movie. It'd be kind of weird if they didn't, though, right? I know. You just watch Obi Wan get killed, and you just fucking run away and blow up Darth Vader's house. <laughs> the end. Yeah. Yeah. We gotta go. Thank you, Kevin Kraft. You're at Kevin Kraft Sucks. You are on the Jason Ellis Show, of course, here on Faction Talk, and you host the Mad Scientist Party Hour podcast. That is all correct. Yeah. 